right. Everybody, welcome, welcome, welcome to Joy Christian Center. Um, thank you for, um, you know, bear, bearing with, you know, the, the tech issues that can come up, but, you know, still yet and still, we're all together. Uh, those of us who are here, those of us who are online, uh, welcome to you. It is good um, to even have this time together, even though uh, we can be in different places. Holy Spirit, which is here, is there with you as well, and it unites us. And so let me uh, take a moment to, to just give you a sense uh, of a few announcements. Uh, first of all, Pastor Johnny and, and Sonia are away for this week and next. Uh, so we will continue to lift them up in prayer as they're on um, hopefully a refreshing vacation uh, where they get to uh, recharge, uh, as well as uh, Midiella. Um, and that's always the challenge a bit. Um, when you've got a, a small child in tow, so we pray, you know, everything go well um, and that they get the rest uh, and they come back restored. Uh, those of us who are here um, will continue to meet, of course. Um, I'll be uh, bringing the word today and I'll be bringing the word next week as well. So I get an opportunity to get a two-parter going. Uh, so get to, to dive into some things a little bit more in depth uh, than normal. So, you know, I feel blessed to be able to do that. Uh, let's proceed with the service, though. Um, let us continue in a spirit of worship um, by opening up in prayer. Um, and I'll start us off as usual. And if there are any prayer requests that any of us want to actually lift up, I'll leave space and room for that as well. And for those of you who are online, we'll, we'll pause. Um, and you can lift things up there online, too. And just know that we are standing in spirit and praying with you as well. So let us look to the Lord. Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for the breath in our bodies today. We thank you that you've made this day. Lord, and that even though the world has not yielded, yielded itself to you, Lord, you are almighty and all powerful. Lord, and we are in your hands. And for that, we give you thanks. Lord, that nothing happens, nothing befalls us, Lord, without your awareness, Lord, and your presence, Lord, remains with us through it all. Lord, as we gather here today, Lord, I just pray that you can allow us to be all of one mind, one spirit, one heart, Lord, that we would leave the cares and the concerns of the week of the past, the week to come, Lord, we can set those aside, Lord, as we focus in on you. Lord, we pray that all things fall into their proper perspective because we're able to get in touch with you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you come by this place, Lord that you would activate in each and every one of us, Lord, those gifts, those talents that you've given us, Lord, that they'd burn anew, that they'd burn afresh, Lord, that you would use them, Father God, and use us to bring about glimpses of your kingdom. Lord, within our homes, within the communities that we're a part of, Lord, within this nation, Lord, and within the world. Let the world, Lord, look and see how you move, how you bring us together, Lord, that they would give you praise and glory. And Father, we lift up those who would cry out to you, Lord, with needs, Lord, whether they be big or small, Lord, there's none too small or too great for you to handle, Lord. Lord, we thank you for that. For those who are dealing with illness and ailment, 
Lord, we pray that you would just place a, a healing hand, a healing touch in their lives, Lord, that you would, you would restore them to health, Lord, those who are dealing with, uh, whether it be flu, whether it be virus, whether it be medical conditions, Lord, those things which would strain us, keep us apart, Lord, physically from one another, Lord, I just pray that it not be the captain and ruler in our existence, in our experience, Lord, but that you would overcome it, Lord, because you've overcome the world already through Christ. Lord, help us to live and, and recognize that, Lord, each and every day, even in the midst of the things that we struggle with. Lord, for those of us who are entering into a holiday season, Lord, dealing with isolation, loneliness, family who may be far away, or family who may no longer be here because of death. Lord, I pray that you would just bring comfort, that you would place in the hearts and minds of the saints, Lord, to stop by and check in on one another. Lord, that your presence would be felt and known even in the midst of grief. Lord, knowing that you have us in your hand who are still living, and those of us who've passed on, you keep them hidden in Christ, Lord. That, Lord, one day you return and make all things well and right. Lord, and there'll be what a reunion that would be. We look forward to that day, Lord, with longing. But in the meanwhile, Lord, we're here. Help us and empower us to do your will. Help us and empower us to give you the praise, honor, and glory. And at this point, we'll pause. And if there are any prayer requests, we ask that those will be lifted at this time. So, Father, for those requests, spoken and unspoken, Lord, you know our hearts and you know our needs, Lord. Lord, and you are our source, and we thank you and praise you that all answers lie in you, Lord. Help us to lean into you. Lord, be our guard on our right and our left. Open our hearts and minds, Lord, as we hear what you would have to say to us today, Lord. Give us obedient hearts, Lord, that we would put these things into practice, Lord, sharpen us with one another, Lord, sharpen us with your word. Help us to be an encouragement and an edifier to each other, Lord. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. Excuse me. Okay. So I have the, the privilege been able to bring the word today um, while our pastor is away. And uh, it, it's an interesting, uh, <laughs> it's been an interesting uh, uh, week of preparation for this. Actually, it's been a couple of weeks because I've, I've had in mind, oh, if I, if, 
the next time I get a chance to bring the word here, here here's something that's just really sort of been uh, with me for, for a while. Uh, and so I, I have the opportunity to, you know, give you what, what I think God is, is dealing with me personally with, uh, but I, I think it also applies to us as, as a body. Uh, and so I, I really am, am appreciative of these times. Uh, I do wish, you know, our, our pastor wouldn't necessarily have to go away uh, for sometimes for all of us to sort of come together in, in, in these ways. Um, but you know what? He, he'll be listening online as well at some point here. So we love you, Pastor. Uh, have a good time out there. Uh, God, is, God is in control here and there. So I'll be talking today um, about a familiar person from Scripture, um, the person of Jonah, Jonah the prophet. Um, and of course, Jonah the prophet is somebody who I think we all are fairly familiar with from if, if we weren't raised in Sunday school, um, even as adults, we know the story of Jonah and the fish or Jonah and the whale. Um, and basically, you know, what happened with Jonah. Uh, but I get an opportunity to spend a couple weeks on, on Jonah um, here. And so today I'd like to just give us a springboard into this person of Jonah. Um, in the way that I, I, I've been sort of looking at Jonah fresh and anew um, is I think, we, I think we've always maybe given Jonah a bit of a bad rap uh, for somebody who would run away when God would tell him to go and, and speak the word and he'd actually choose to go the opposite direction. Um, and you know, there, there's, there's, there's a consequence for that, absolutely. Um, but I'm, I'm a bit of a therapist type. And so I like to try to get behind why would somebody respond in that way? Um, and, and you know, I think Jonah's not too different than, than the rest of us in this way. Uh, so as a springboard into it, I like to start with this opening illustration. Just bear with the illustration. I will tie it all together. Uh, Lord willing, uh, as we move through this. So one of the things that I have noticed um, of late, of the past few years, um, when I go different places or whatever, um, I might be away from home and I typically have to eat out um, where I am if I'm working you know, in another state, uh, definitely in, in other countries. Um, and a part of that process when you eat out like you would find when you eat out here is there's the menu that you get when you're at the restaurant and you get a chance to choose what you want from the menu. One of the things that I've noticed, the difference between uh, a menu in the US and a menu in a lot of the other countries and places where I, I work and visit is in the US, the menu always typically has a kid's menu. Whereas in another country, there's not really a kid's section to the menu. And I pause and I think about this a bit because you know what, in the US, we didn't used to have kids' sections in menus. Not when I was a kid, we didn't really have kids' sections. Um, but if you ever look at the kids' section on the menu, um, there's some pretty consistent things that you will find on that kids' section, no matter what the restaurant is, no matter how high-end it is or how sort of affordable it is. You will find some version of a chicken nugget. You will find some version of a quesadilla some version of fish sticks, some version of a hamburger, some version of sort of fast foody type food, um, and, and maybe some macaroni and cheese. So in, in, with some variation. Um, and so I got to thinking about this. I'm like, wow, why is it that, first of all, there, there's kid menus, it's kid section of a menu, no matter where you go here. And then every restaurant seems to have pretty much the same stuff on the kid section. And then I begin to think about it in my own upbringing. I realized that, you know, Kids today, I have seen, especially when I'm working with families, 
how parents can absolutely have very little bandwidth, be extremely busy. Uh, you know, it's, it's one or two parents trying to raise kids and take care of a household these days. You really don't have, you know, grandparents or, or neighbors or aunts and uncles necessarily who, who can stop by and, and lend a hand. It, we don't have the village anymore helping to raise the kids. It's pretty much on one or both parents. And I, I've often just marveled at parents telling me how busy they are. And when it comes to mealtime, how busy mealtime is because they, they prepare a meal for the family, but each kid has their own food preference. And so they have to prepare like two and three meals just for one dinner. And I really think, wow, it didn't used to be that way. Um, it really used to be different. I remember as a kid um, <laughs> having to eat whatever my parents put in front of me. And that actually meant I had to choke down a few meals that just weren't my favorite. And I had to choke it down. And heaven forbid, if I claim that I wasn't going to eat it, I, I remember some long nights, like 11 p.m., 11.30, where I'm sitting at the table and my mom is not going to let me go to bed until I eat what's on the plate. Uh, and I think about how different those times were versus how those times are today, where uh, kids have a much narrower range of, of food palate, and it seems like our society does cater to that a bit. Now. If you happen to be listening and you have, have a child who has that narrow food palate, this is not casting aspersions on you. Let me just say, I, I understand a few things about what's different today than what's different yesterday. Uh, what's different today is number one, all those uh, junk foods and fast foody type foods are a lot cheaper than most other foods. And of course, you know, with, with the constraints of finances and things like that, um, you know, it's easier to come by, much easier and much more available today than it was um, back when I was a kid. I remember the first time I had a Wendy's hamburger. Um, that was a treat. And now some kids, that is their daily meal. So it's a lot more available. And, you know, the commercials pump it. And so the kids ask for it. And, and parents do want to affirm their kids. That the parents everywhere want to tell their kids yes to things. And when you have to tell your kids no to a lot of things, because the kids ask for things that are crazy expensive, or the kid wants to go here and there and it's just not safe in the same way it was as it was when I was a kid, parents have to say no a lot. And so they look for opportunities to actually say yes to their kids, the things that their kids want. And what do the kids want? They want the fast food type stuff and it's available and it's affordable. So there, there's all these dynamics that lead to kids not necessarily having to be exposed to foods outside of what they're accustomed to. And then they have to develop their palates and develop an acquired taste. So that's why I think kids have a much narrower band of both. Uh, a food palette today, but it, it does lead to some health challenges as a result of that. So when I think back to what I would call the good old days, uh, those days where, where I was coming up and, and you know those of you who might be older than me coming up, where we, we really had to eat what was in front of us or we didn't eat at all, um, we learned to actually deal with stuff that wasn't our favorite. And I've noticed, and if you can recall being back in grade school, if you know, you're my age or you know, older, kids learned a really interesting technique to deal with foods that they necessarily did not like or find you know, was their favorite. They would eat it, but they would hold their nose while they chewed. Anybody do that? <laughs> Holding your nose while you eat the food. And first of all, it actually works. 
Okay, so if you hold your nose, I, I think we sometimes don't realize how much smell is a part of the flavor of the food that we actually eat. So much so that you, you can do this experiment on your own. If you blindfold somebody and have them hold their nose and have them take a bite of an apple and then have them take a bite of an onion, it tastes the exact same. An apple and an onion taste the exact same if you hold your nose and you don't know what it is that you're chewing. Now, if you let go of your nose, you're gonna get a whiff of something, right? It's gonna to come to you loud and clear. But holding one's nose while you eat something that is not your favorite is not a fun experience, but that is the route by which I find that we do cause our kids' palates to expand. What most of us don't realize is that what we actually need to actually have a, a well-rounded diet and eat a variety of foods that bring us the nutrition so that we grow and develop healthily is we, we, we definitely understand that there's foods that we like as soon as we eat it, usually sweet, salty, fatty foods. And then there's foods that we can't stand because we're probably allergic to it and we probably shouldn't eat it. But then there's the foods that we're just unfamiliar with, right? This, this category of foods that, okay, this is new to me, it's not like it's bad necessarily, but it doesn't taste good. That middle box. And if you've got that middle box and you can hang with that middle box for a bit, that's where you learn to actually acquire a taste for certain foods if you eat it more than once or twice. And that's how we expand our palate. And that's how we get a healthy diet and a wide range of things that we'll eat and we grow up healthy. So I say all that to say this. It is a parent's job to expand the palate of the child so that they get what they need and they grow healthily. In the same way, I do see that God also pushes us in ways where it causes us to expand our palate, our repertoire. And so we have to figure out how do we deal with those things that God is sort of challenging us and tasking us with, pushing us into, but yet it, it's uncomfortable. It's not our favorite. It's not the things that, that we love. How do we sort of deal with that? And we find that oftentimes we go into things holding our nose like little kids. But holding our nose is not necessarily a bad thing so long as we still do it, so long as we engage it. Think about this as we get into the story of Jonah. I'm gonna start though with the story of Jonah and, and I'm gonna call Jonah a prophet who is a nose holder, okay? a prophet who is a nose holder. But this is how God does grow us and expand us. Um, for our own well-being and development, but also God gets the glory and God gets the praise because we have to sort of trust and step out and be obedient to him in things that we're not accustomed to and things that we don't necessarily want to engage on our own. So we're going to start by looking at Jonah, but before we get into Jonah, Jonah is a very interesting Old Testament prophet. Most of the Old Testament prophets, when you read the Bible, they actually record the words of God that the that are given to the prophet, that they speak to the people of their day, and that comprises the books. So there are about 12 books, which we call minor prophets, four which are major prophets. Major and minor, the distinction is basically the length of the book, um, not that they're more or less important than one another. And when you, when you look at all these Old Testament prophets, how they typically read is it's a collection of all the messages that God has given them over their lifespan that they're actually proclaiming to the people, proclaiming to those around them in terms of 
where they may have stepped off and, and left God or where they may actually be living in wickedness or sinfulness. And God is calling their attention to that. And if they do not turn, God is going to bring judgment to them. That is what most of the Old Testament prophets are engaged in that process. Jonah, however, is a little bit different. Jonah does not actually, uh, the Bible doesn't record Jonah's prophecies and the words that Jonah is necessarily giving in that same way. The Bible records Jonah's life experiences, not necessarily just the words, but more the life experiences that Jonah is having. And, and the Bible does that with very few prophets. Most of the prophets, it's just the words. But, but one of the prophets that, that closely follow or closely are, are aligned with how the Bible treats Jonah's narrative is also the prophet Elijah. And so we, we, we can think about and maybe use as a lens to understand Jonah, what we can see with Elijah. And so I'm gonna start there in 1 Kings chapter 17, and this is gonna be a bit of an overview. We're gonna look at when Elijah first comes on the scene, the Bible is dealing with Elijah similarly in the way that the Bible actually deals with Jonah. And we know a lot about Elijah. Um, and so Elijah, the Bible's talking about these experiences that God is bringing Elijah through, not just the words that Elijah is speaking that God gives Elijah to speak to the, to the powers that be around him. And in, in 1 Kings chapter 17, this is when Elijah first comes on the biblical scene. And what we actually have in 1 Kings 17 is the people, Israel, um, you know, they are not living how they should be. Um, and as they continue to practice idolatry and do all the things that God would have them to not do, God sends them warnings time and time and time again, turn, repent, come back to me, follow me. Sometimes the people turn and repent. Most of the time, people do not turn and repent, and then, therefore, God brings judgment. And the prophet's job is to tell people that judgment is coming. And so Elijah shows up on the scene in the midst of the sinfulness of the people, and God issues through Elijah this message that, hey, there's going to be a drought, and it's going to be a pretty severe drought as a result of the calamity and the sinfulness that's going on, the wickedness of the people. And so this drought actually ensues because people don't listen. They continue to stay unrepentant. Um, and in chapter 17, it tells us a bit in terms of God enacting this drought, but God taking care of Elijah in the process. And so while all the trees and the plants are actually drying up and shriveling up and dying and all the water sources are actually, you know, diminishing because of this drought and this drought is to go on for years. Elijah actually is directed by God to go to Cherith, which is a brook, a water source. And Elijah listens and obeys God and goes to this place. And there's water there for Elijah to drink in the midst of this drought that's going to go on. But where's the food? And so God actually instructs food to be flown into Elijah twice a day, in the morning and in the evening, brought in by ravens. So the birds actually fly the food in drop off meat, drop off bread, and Elijah has food and drink every day. So God is taking care of Elijah. And this seems like a miraculous miracle. I think this is something that we would all praise God for because this is truly God intervening and taking care of his person. But if we stop and think what this experience must actually be like for Elijah, a prophet, an Old Testament prophet, who is a Jew, who understands and knows and lives by the Torah and the law, there's something very interesting about who is bringing the food, who God is using to bring the food. 
I kind of wish the story would go, God would use angels to deliver the food on trays, right? Or God would use a dove to bring the food in. But God actually uses a particular type of bird that if we look in Leviticus, under those birds which are listed as unclean, this is the very bird that's listed as an abomination that they should not eat and have much to do with, the raven. And so why in the world would God actually use an unclean bird that is considered an abomination to bring the food twice a day to the Old Testament prophet who lives by the word of God and understands the Torah? I can only imagine that maybe that first meal, Elijah must be thinking and feeling some kind of way. And if there was ever a meal that he probably did maybe hold his nose around, it was probably the one that he had to eat behind the ravens. And that continued day in and day out for a while. And I don't know how long it probably took Elijah to get sort of over that, you know, but it seems like, you know, he's aware that God is taking care of him, even though God is putting him in a situation that might be one that's a bit uncomfortable for somebody who lives by the Torah and obeys the law. And then I would say, well, let, let's think about that for a bit. Why would God actually do that? Why would God just not make it pristine and easy? I think sometimes we, we wonder, does, does God delight in our discomfort? Does God like to actually put us in situations where we're always sort of uh, feeling some kind of way about something? And I don't think God just does that just for the sake of, you know, giggles. I don't think God is, is sadistic in those ways. But what, what I think we can understand when we look at scripture is that God doesn't delight in our discomfort, but God does delight when we are stretched to the point where we have to trust him beyond the things that we see that make us uncomfortable. That is an opportunity for faith and obedience to actually stand up. And so the Bible actually tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, verse six, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so every assignment that God seems like he will give his people seems to be one that not just brings him glory and, and helps establish his kingdom on earth, but it's one that in the process is going to stretch his people so that we have to get a bit beyond our comfort zone, step out and trust God in faith and still be obedient. And in the process, could it be that God is actually expanding our palate a bit so that, number one, we actually grow mature in him spiritually, but then he can also use us for greater things down the road? Because when we keep this in mind and then we look at, well, why would God just send those ravens? What's the point of those ravens? And then we look at the very next story in chapter 17 about Elijah. It says God causes the brook to actually dry up because of that drought being so severe. And when the water source stops, now Elijah has to go someplace else. And God directs Elijah to Zarephath, where he says there is a widow that he's commanded to actually provide for Elijah. So it, it would seem like, wow, so shouldn't the food coming from a person make Elijah much more comfortable than maybe the food coming from ravens, which were the abomination. Elijah goes, he finds this widow. She's gathering sticks at the time. He approaches her. He says, hey, can you grab me a drink of water? She says, no problem. This is the Rick Williamson paraphrase. As she's going to get the water, he says, hey, and by the way, make me a little cake as well um, and bring that to me so I might have something to eat. 
And she says, well, sir, to be honest, um, I only have a handful of meal and just a little bit of oil. It's just me and my son. And the reason I'm out here gathering sticks is because I'm just preparing my last meal for us. And after that, we have no more food. We're prepared to starve and die because of the drought. Elijah, undismayed. Well, make a little cake for me first, just the same. And she actually obeys. Clearly, she's been having a conversation with God because God told Elijah, he's prepared this widow. He's commanded this widow. And so she actually makes the cake. And what ends up happening as a result of that is the little bit of meal that she actually has and the little bit of oil that she has turns out to last over the duration of that drought, which goes on for nearly three years. It never runs out. This widow and her son continue to have enough food daily to eat. So Elijah ends up staying with this widow for the duration of that time, over two years. Elijah, as well as the widow, as well as the, son, the widow's son, and whomever the neighbors are who get to find out about this, it's praise to God that God is providing in a miraculous way. So God gets the glory from at least three, as opposed to just the one Elijah when he was at the brook by himself. But even though this is wonderful and miraculous, we have to put ourselves back in the place of Elijah once more. This widow was not a Jewish widow. This widow was a Gentile widow. And one of the things that the Jews typically followed very strictly is they would not eat with a Gentile, let alone go into a Gentile person's home, let alone live with a Gentile person for two plus years, eating daily with them. That was something that just was not done. And so you, you would think, you know, what must Elijah be thinking when what he has to do now, it seems like he has to break every sort of taboo almost in order to obey the word of God in following out and carrying out the mission that God has given him. I would imagine it could have been, you know, when he first walked into this lady's house, he's sort of looking around um, and that first meal, maybe, maybe he's having another nose holding moment again. Um, but Elijah has been prepared for this process. And why? Because we have to go back to the ravens. The ravens is what actually helped him to understand that, you know what, God is going to stretch you in some ways. And once you're sort of ready and, and, and solid there, God is going to move you to the next thing, which is going to involve what? You stretching a little bit more. And God is consistently stretching Elijah in ways so that Elijah can actually be used by God for God's purposes. Now, I think, and this is just my conjecture with this, that Elijah is not different than the rest of us in this way. God does not actually deal with Elijah too differently than he deals with, with the rest of us. Because I do find that um, God has assignments for his people. We are his people by the grace of God. And, and those assignments oftentimes do entail us having to stretch out beyond our comfort zone. And as soon as we think we sort of have it down, God sort of moves us into another area where we have to then once again stretch and grow. My own illustration is this, for, I, I, can, I can see this in myself. When I was a teenager, I prayed this prayer and I prayed a lot of prayers, but this is the prayer that, that I remember praying and it sticks with me because I told God, I remember I was laying on my stomach. I was sort of, I, was, I had a little radio here 
and, and I was just laying on the ground on the stomach, on my stomach. And I remember praying to God saying, God, I don't care where in this world you want to send me. If you, if you tell me to go wherever in this world, I'm willing to go and I will go. I said, but there's just one condition. And this is the foolish part. I don't want to go crazy places if I've got a wife and kid. Because I don't want to drag people. I was a military kid. I was raised having to go places where my dad was stationed. Um, and even though that was fine for me, I'm like, but the places where God can send you, they can be a little rougher than that. You know, and so I'm thinking down the road, I'm thinking, well, that probably wouldn't be good for a kid. Um, that might be hard on the family. So God, I'm willing to go wherever you want to go, but you know what? Let's not drag anybody else through this, right? So that was my prayer. And when I think back on that prayer, I think God is certainly funny, right? Because of that was over 20, I was probably 13, 12 or 13 or 14, no more than 14, year, 14 years old. So however many years ago that was between now and then. Um, I didn't start actually going to, you know, I go to these really crazy wild places that, that have problems. And I didn't start doing that until my daughter was born and she was six months old. And I think, God, you're really funny to actually press go on something that you know I'm willing to do, but you wait until it's the very time that I said, but I don't know about doing it if this is the case. And to be honest, God still has always had, had it. You know, God has always still had everything under control. I've, I've never really regretted any of that. But, but that really wasn't even the hard part of the prayer. To be real honest, when I think about it, the hard part of the prayer was the first part of the prayer that I prayed. God, I'm willing as a single person to go wherever you send me. Because up until Rochelle was born, God actually put me in some places and I didn't have to get on a plane to go. And they were really, really difficult for me. I ended up living in Arkansas. That's not a godforsaken place, but I ended up living in, in, in Arkansas and I had living with me in my home 14 kids, adolescents, who we pulled out of jails and prisons. And, and I tell you, that, that, that was uncomfortable for me. That was uncomfortable for me personally. Um, not just the element in, in some of the lives that these kids have had, but I can remember days when, when it would get kind of cold. You know, in November time, it starts to get cold in certain parts of the country. And when it gets cold, all, all the critters try to run into the houses. So the rats and the mice, they come into the houses. And I remember the very first time um, I saw a mouse in the house when I was like living in my parents' home and for whatever reason it got cold and a mouse came into the house. And I tell you, I slept outside that night in the truck because I was just determined I'm too uncomfortable to live in a place where there are mice. And I slept in the truck that, that first night. By the time I lived in Arkansas, at least by the time I finished, mice would come in on a seasonal basis. And I remember one morning waking up and the reason that I woke up is because maybe three mice ran across the blanket as I was sleeping. And all I did was do this and roll over and go back to sleep. It was uncomfortable the first time it happened, but you know what? God sent me there and I did what I was supposed to do, thank goodness. And in the process, what first seemed uncomfortable just didn't seem that uncomfortable anymore. And maybe that's what I needed then to be able to go into some of these places where I go now, where you know I think I've told some of you, there was one day I woke up in the morning and I'm hearing things all around me because I, I 
came to this country in the middle of the night um, and they, they put me in this room uh, and we, you know, we ready to roll first thing, sign the first thing in the morning. And the first thing that woke me up in the morning was a rooster crowing. And I'm like, that rooster sounds like it's in this room. And then as the sunlight started to come through, I realized that I'm hearing pigs and other animals. And then I realized I'm just in the loft of a barn and there's animals all around and there's woodworms falling from the ceiling and there's all sorts of things. And I'm like, let's roll with it. It's all good. I just don't think I would have been able to do that had I not just had my preparatory experiences. And this is where I feel like, you know, God doesn't deal too differently with us today than he's, than he's dealt with with his people that we can see in the Old Testament. So keep these things in mind as we, as we uh, try to do a springboard into Jonah. It's a little bit of a different take on Jonah than maybe you might think, because I'm not actually going to start this Sunday with looking at Jonah in the book of Jonah. I'm actually going to start this Sunday by looking at where Jonah first comes on the scene in the Bible, and that's in 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 25, just two verses. 2 Kings 14, 23 through 25. It says, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that is Jeroboam the first, who had made Israel sin. He, that is Jeroboam, restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. Jonah first comes on the scene in 2 Kings, and it says that he actually provided a prophecy of prosperity, of blessing to the king of Israel, Jeroboam II. And, and it may be intuitive to maybe assume that, wow, to, to bring a message of blessing, a prophecy of prosperity to the king of your people would be something that maybe a prophet would be willing to do and wanting to do. It would seem like it would be a good thing, something that'd be easy to do. But let's pause with that for a moment and maybe consider what do we actually know about Jeroboam II? Because what it says here in verse 24 is, Jeroboam II did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam I, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. When we actually look throughout scripture, but particularly certain parts of scripture like Amos, when, when there are Old Testament prophets who are actually living at the time of this king, Jeroboam, what are the things that the Old Testament prophets are saying about Jeroboam II? And they're all very consistent. Jeroboam, despite the military victories of being able to reclaim all the land that Israel had lost um, over the years, Jeroboam, those victories brought about economic prosperity for Israel, but he gave those economic prosperous opportunities to his friends. So the friends of the king became wealthy, and the rich got richer, but then also this idolatry continued within Israel, 
And specifically it manifested in that the poor and the oppressed became poor and more oppressed and that they would end up in slavery and in prison, debtor prisons. If we look at the book of Amos, the book of Amos actually starts off talking about how terrible a king Jeroboam actually is. This is very consistent when you look at the prophets of Jeroboam's day. Jeroboam is not a good king. And when you have a king who is not a good king, and the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and all of this social injustice pervades the land so that you, as you look out and see your fellow countrymen being made poor and impoverished, and in that process, you have no legal recourse, therefore you're ending up in debtor prison and in slavery, might you feel some way about that? And this is what marks Jeroboam's reign for 41 years. All the Old Testament prophets of that time are calling out and calling these things out. These are all the calamities and bad things that are going to happen to you, Jeroboam. These are all the bad things that are going to happen to Israel as long as we persist in this way. God is telling us to turn back to him. That is the consistent message that the prophets are actually given Jeroboam with the exception of one prophet, and that is Jonah. Do we really believe that Jonah did not feel the same way or see the same things? I would just ask us to pause for a moment on this. Jonah is just like the other Old Testament prophets in that they know the word, they live by the Torah, God holds them to very strict standards so that they live and they walk the walk and they talk the talk. They see the problems, they see the idolatry, they see the oppression that's happening to the vulnerable. The very things that when you know the heart and the mind of God, God is always consistently concerned about widows, orphans, the captives, the prisoner in their time of vulnerability. Yet God gives Jonah a word to give to King Jeroboam, which is a word of prosperity and blessing. You're actually going to take back these lands. It's a, it's a word of prosperity and blessing. I wonder if that was a bit of a nose-holding moment for Jonah to have to go and be an instrument of blessing, an instrument of God's grace, but to the wicked. How does Jonah feel about that? But I, I would pause and ask us, how do we feel about that notion as well? How do we feel about the idea that God would be a God of mercy and grace to the people who either hurt us, cause us pain, or cause the people with whom we're connected in love and care about pain and calamity. That's that, that at, at the least it raises some feelings of complexity. And this is what Jonah was faced with. And I think sometimes we don't stop to think about what this experience might actually lead to for Jonah because it seems as we get into uh, a springboard into looking more at Jonah's life, according to the book of Jonah, Jonah comes into that book sort of already seasoned, knowing some things about how God tends to use him. And, and if what Jonah is learning is that, wow, God is putting me in a, in a position and in a place where I have to actually give a word of, of and be sort of the source and instrument of blessing to wicked people, how does Jonah feel about that? I think there are many of us who, who can probably relate because I do think there, 
I imagine Old Testament prophets being folks who would be a bit more on. So, so if I had to be, be sort of draw draw this out this way, I would say there are some people who are on the judgment side of things, and there's some people who are on the grace side of things. I don't think that's really fair to to make it a polarity. I don't think they're opposites, but there are some people like I think prophets, Old Testament prophets, who it is their job to actually call out the wrongs and let the folks around them know if we persist in this, God has us on a particular covenant that says if we persist in evil, God is going to bring judgment and punishment is going to befall us. And so there are some people who are judgment type people and it seems like the Old Testament prophets, that's what they rolled with. They could rock with that. They resonated with that. But because they rocked with and resonated with that to such a degree, I do think, and that seems like it is the opportunity for God to actually take Jonah who might be more calibrated to that side of the, the spectrum and say, but I actually want you to be the vessel and the instrument of grace. I'm going to bring blessing and grace to the wicked and you are going to be instrumentally involved in that process. Yet you might be a person who actually thinks the wicked need to be punished. And I think there are those of us today who typically can be sort of register on the side of, nah, we're justice people. We see the injustices that happen. Those injustices need to be addressed and redressed. And, and that's where we are. We really resonate there. And I don't think that we would be surprised then when we actually find ourselves being used by God in ways that sort of stretches us to have to incorporate grace, love, mercy, just bring in those other dimensions that, that are truly of God and fill in the rest of the equation. And this is where God has, and sometimes that, that causes us to stretch because, you know, heaven forbid anything terrible happen to you, yours, or, or something horrendous, right? But when I think about the application of something like this, I think, well, what, is, what would it be like if God calls us to actually go to our enemy and go to our enemy in such a way where it actually extend grace instead of justice. I can imagine if, if uh, in the days of Bonhoeffer back in World War II, when, when you had the, the Nazis going on and you had, had the war going on, if Somebody, if God would have called somebody and say, you know, go, go to the streets of Berlin, you know, and, and proclaim God so that they would repent and turn and God would bless them. After all the atrocities and, and calamity that they've caused in the rest of the world, that's what God still wants to do. And I think that would cause some mixed feelings for a lot of us. But when we look at scripture and, and we see consistently how scripture talks about, yes, God is a God of righteousness and justice, Psalm 103, but at the same time, God is slow to anger and full of mercy. We have to realize that God is just more complex than we may realize. God is bigger and more complex and, and we're limited and finite. And so we can sort of grab onto one aspect of God that resonates with us, but God is always sort of trying to prompt us to grow and incorporate and, and widen our palate, as it were, for him, so that we actually reflect him better to the world. And so God doesn't disregard justice. The Bible says he's long-suffering, but by implication, long-suffering means 
but at some point justice will come if things don't change. But that timing is always God's. And that timing is not our timing. And so I don't wanna cast grace and mercy as somehow the opposite of justice, but I do think scripture tells us that grace and mercy does have an implication that vengeance is not ours, that vengeance, anything that is going to actually befall somebody, that belongs to God and in God's timing. But we are to be instruments of mercy. We are to be instruments of grace um, because mercy triumphs over judgment. That is James chapter two. This is, I would say, something that if we can hold on to how God dealt with Elijah, how God deals with Jonah, how God actually deals with us individually, I think we can begin to see a through line in terms of the things that God is continuing to show us about himself through our experiences, particularly through the experiences where we feel stretched, where we feel are the more difficult times when we look back and when we mine those experiences, the times of the ravens, the times of having to give the word and be the instrument of grace and mercy to the wicked, the times that sort of jack us up internally, God is still there and revealing an aspect of his character that is absolutely vital and important for us to understand and come to know. When we look at our own lives and we can see how God is stretching us in ways, the places where we're most uncomfortable, but yet God is still there. We begin to understand not just who God is in a greater way, but it also gives us a sense for who we actually are as well. Because I think what, 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 what Jonah can take away from Jonah's initial experience and what we will see next week when we look at his full story is Jonah has a call to actually be an instrument of grace to the wicked. That's who Jonah is. Jonah has a difficult time with that though, but that's what God has called him to do. When we realize who we are and what God has created and called us to do and who to be, because we see an aspect of God's character that God is trying to manifest in the world that actually gives us a strong and, and a good sense of who we truly are. If you want to know what your own identity is, I would say this as a psychologist, don't listen to psychology. Psychology gets this wrong every time. Psychology is gonna say, look inward, navel gaze, figure out the things that you like and figure out your identity and even determine your own identity if it doesn't fit, right? Scripture says, look to God, see who God is, and because you're able to discern certain things about God, God is infinite, but you can pick out one or two things that God continually brings to you through your experiences about God. And then you realize, oh, I have eyes that see this aspect of God, that really appreciate this aspect of our Lord. That tells me something about who God has created me to be in this world. I see these things, so I'm gonna manifest these things in the world. That's the source of identity. We look to God, we do not look to self. That is how identity is actually founded. And so when we can get that through line in terms of how has God dealt with us through our experiences, particularly our difficult stretching experiences, 
we realize probably what Jonah should realize, probably what Elijah did realize, is that God is gracious and God is going to be the first actor in the lives of people, not once they've cleaned themselves up and now that they're ready for God, but God is trying to reach all so that none perish and all come to repentance. And he's gonna reach out as the first step towards us when we're in the middle of our wickedness. In the very place where we're at our worst, God shows up and gives us opportunity and, ex and extends his hand. That is a sacred place from which to operate from if God has called you to that space. We may not always be comfortable with it. The discomfort is not the problem. The discomfort is almost par for course in that sense, because this is how God stretches us, that we actually grow and develop in the ways that he needs us to, so that we can be used by him to bring him glory down the road. So with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to bring this I'm going to book in this piece just to a close because this is going to be our springboard to where we're going to go next time when we're actually looking at Jonah on Jonah's own terms based on the book that actually represents his life experiences. If you ever wondered why would he turn and run so hard in the very opposite direction that God told him to go, just consider what we've talked about this time. God has called him to be an instrument of grace amongst the wicked, and he's holding his nose while he has to do it. And some kids don't hold their nose any longer. Some kids push away from the table. Some kids refuse to eat to their detriment. And what does the parent do? Does the parent kick him out of the house? Well, then you'll never eat again, starve? No, but the parent says, okay, the way that I'm giving you, you don't like, but the way that you want to take is actually even harder, but I'm not going to give up on you. And just remember that God is a good parent in that way. And so I think the take home from this is, you know, as we, as a body, you know, at a, at a place in the life of our small congregation, where I think we are stretching in new ways, growing in new ways, um, there, there will be a time when we actually get to get out into the neighborhoods and do some canvassing and, and meet people. Um, and if we've never done that, that, that is a bit of a, a stretch and a challenge. I, I believe that's a challenge for me as well. Um, but I can just tell you from my own experience being here amongst this body at Joy Christian Center, there was a time when I thought, well, it doesn't make sense why the pastor's asking me to, to head up the mission to Mexico. I don't speak Spanish. There are a lot of people in church who speak Spanish. Why, why would you choose me to do that? And plus I'm gone most of the time, but you know what? Okay, God, let's roll with it. And I've not regretted it. And, you know, I, I look forward to the opportunities to go down there. And I've grown in the process because God has continually shown up, continually shown up. And, and I just consider maybe this is sort of the next phase for myself, even in terms of, okay, well, I still don't know Spanish. And, hey, we're in a community now where Spanish is uh, the language that many people actually speak. But thank God for those early experiences where, you know what, but I'm not uncomfortable as a result of navigating situations where, okay, it, it's a language I don't understand and I'm gonna listen to translation. I'm gonna try to learn the best as I can. I'm okay with that now. Knowing that God is probably gonna wait for me to be okay with it and then stretch me some more in some way that I probably won't appreciate in the moment and I'll be holding my nose, but that's how God is, right? To God's glory.
So us as a church, I think we stand on the precipice of being stretched. It is okay to do some nose holding so long as we remain obedient and we step out because God will absolutely get the glory and God will use us. And the fact that God will use us is a thing that allows us to grow. So with that, um, I, I ask us to maybe chew on that for, for the week. Uh, come back if, if you can, you know, read uh, the book of Jonah and be ready to roll next time um, because we're going to delve into that a bit um, and, and look forward to what the Lord would have to tell us that day. All right, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again, Lord, that you are infinite, Lord, and that your character is beyond fathomable, Lord, but yet and still you desire us to know you. And you give us opportunity, Lord, to get to know you. Thank you, Father, for the grace that you've given each of us, Lord, that you've brought us into relationship with you and then therefore with each other. And Lord, as you extend that same grace and desire to extend that same grace to the rest of the world who have yet to come to know you, we know, Lord, that you may call some of us to be right in those spaces, Lord, where in the midst of people, in the midst of their sinfulness, Lord, you desire to bring grace, to extend your hand to them, Lord, through us, Lord, and use us as you will. But we trust, Lord, that as we go from this place, the breath that you give us, Lord, each and every day, Lord, we will use it for you. Lord, the opportunities that we're presented each and every day, Lord, that we be mindful, Lord, that they are opportunities to stretch out in faith and please you. Lord, help us to live up to our namesake in this community as this body, Lord. Let us to be a joy and a blessing to you, Lord, because we walk in faith and we're obedient. Bless each person here as we go. Bless those who are online, Lord. Keep them, Lord, until we can meet again. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.